0: Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so you can listen on the go. Enjoy.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood. As some of the more observant amongst you might observe, I'm not in our Westminster studio. I'm in beautiful sunny sri lanka and that's a good enough excuse to make this week's edition a super duper global asia pacific edition of live with littlewood i say live with littlewood we're recording this as live um it will go out a few hours off we put it in the can so it's as live with littlewood really um the you know we'll, we'll, we'll we're being as live as we can be but we're across four different time zones. And, um, you know, that's making it tricky to record, but we're going to put the world to rights as we we'll always do in just an hour or so with a stellar lineup of guests on this special Asia Pacific edition of Live with Littlewood. <laughs> Kaboom, kapow! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining me for this week's Live with Littlewood. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you hit the thumbs up, the like button. If you're not yet a subscriber to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit subscribe and the notification bell. That way you'll get all of the information about our huge plethora of our upcoming videos. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by my friend, Rainer Kufers, who's the Executive Director of the Centre for Indonesian Policy Studies to discuss how the free market is going in his country, and by the Executive Director of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, Jordan Williams. He'll be talking to me about the zero, zero COVID strategy that appears to have been applied in his country and whether it's paying off. But first up, I'm delighted to be joined from the home team in London, but really an Aussie, by the IEA's very own head of public policy, Matthew Lesh. Matthew, good to have you with us. How are you, sir? I'm flourishing. How are you, Mark? Uh, I'm very, very good. It's nice and warm and sunny here. It's a bit cold over in London still, is it? I'm viciously envious, I'm going to be honest. Uh... Okay, okay. Well, I'm not envying you. And a warm (laughs) welcome to Live with Littlewood to Donna Fernando, the chief operating Officer of the Advocata Think Tank here in Sri Lanka. Warm welcome to you, Donna. Thanks, Mark.
2: Pleasure Great to be on
1: your show. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Um, let's kick off with Sri Lanka, then. Uh, we're going to put up on screen some of the basic facts about Sri Lanka. Population just north of 20 million. GDP per capita, about 4,000 US dollars. Inflation. the Inflation rate January of this year, 14% might be a taste of things to come in the rest of the world. Um, number of registered deaths from COVID, just over 15,000. Border states are open, obviously. I couldn't be here otherwise. So, Donna, let me... Could you help give our viewers and listeners an overview of how things are in Sri Lanka at the moment? I've got a theory that the official names of countries don't really describe the country. The United Kingdom isn't particularly united. The United States of America definitely isn't united. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea is not really about the people democratic or a republic. So what are we to make of the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka?
2: I think we are quite a deviation from your observation, Mark. Uh, we pretty much stick to the socialistic uh, side, of, uh, side of things. Uh, since independence since uh, 1948, uh, once we got the independence, uh from the british rule uh just to fast track to the current situation uh we are in bit of a tight situation for in our economy uh, of course because of wrong economic uh, policies that we have been adhering for quite a quite a long time and uh, and the situation is uh the 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 the, the very reason is basically uh, for not adhering for a market system we only had a reform attempt in 1997, uh, but that was also like a half-hearted attempt, and uh, the, the labor market regula- the, the labor market reforms were not done properly. So as a result, uh, we are in a bit of a tight situation, as you may have seen on uh, Financial Times, we are on headlines uh, with, of course, for wrong reasons, uh, with the risk of uh, debt sustainability. And, uh, and we have mounting debt repayments with reserves uh, for about 3 billion uh, US dollars in hand, but having about uh, 6 billion to be paid uh, this year. Uh, so, in terms of debt sustainability, we have issues. Of course, our markets are not uh, functioning. I mean, the market system is not functioning well. So, as a result, the resource allocation is not optimized. And we are in a bit of a difficult situation this year, in particular. But it doesn't mean that we have been in good shape for the last uh, uh, quite quite a few decades
1: uh, mark. Okay, I want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, Going to the, the kind of Bible of freedom, the heritage index of economic freedom. Sri Lanka comes 131st out of 184 countries doing particularly badly in the areas of free trade, regulation and fiscal health. The index says to achieve greater economic freedom, the government would need to implement deep, broad and well-institutionalised reforms to raise very low scores for property rights, judicial effectiveness and government integrity. Debt reduction, which you've just touched on, Dana, would also be required. Now, you've written previously, Dana, that you think that Sri Lanka can learn some lessons from Singapore to try and supercharge your economy. What's your think tank agitating for? What are the key reforms that you would hope that the sri lankan government brings in and even if uh, there's no uh, prospect of that in the immediate weeks or months you know what are you what reforms do you think sri lanka needs very specifically over the next 3 or 4 years 10 years even
2: yes so we would li- start uh, we would like to start with uh, the reforms mainly on the property side because 82% of the sri lankan land is owned by the government so people really don't own the land so i think that's one of the key reforms that the government is uh, government can consider, or the policymakers can consider, and we have been an active advocate for uh, for the for the property rights reforms. And uh, secondly, uh, it's the state sector and the state-owned enterprises reforms. Uh, we have a we have a massive state sector. About 1.5 million uh, of uh, employees are in the state sector out of 8 million uh, uh, workforce, uh, which is quite a large number uh, under any any given country. Uh, countries' demography, uh, and also most of our state-owned enterprises are loss-making. I think it's the it's the same case for most of the other countries as well. Uh, our main uh, main state, like five institutes out of 527 uh, state-owned uh, enterprises, makes about uh, 300 million losses rupees losses per day. That's uh, in dollar terms, uh, about uh, divided by 200, so about 1.5 million. Dollars uh, of losses every day, uh, uh, according to uh, according to the the statistics. Uh, so that's the second reform that we would like to push, and third, uh, again, uh, mainly on uh, the uh, mainly on the kind of tax reforms. Tax reforms in the sense we have uh, we are we have been taxing all the wrong sectors, and it's not it's very complicated. So. So think about uh, like less taxes and limited uh, size of the government uh, to to explore. So that's the third reform. But of course, given a given a given a demographic of, of a country like Sri Lanka with 400,000 uh, dollar income, of course there is a quite a large poor poor sector, uh, poor people in, in the Sri Lankan economy. So we also suggest uh, some other reforms like a cash transfer system to take care of poor given the dynamics. So those are the broader reforms that we push uh, at the moment. Uh, but there are quite a lot to be done, and our institutions are not strong. Uh, the, the markets are not operating. So broadly, it's a market-based reform system that we propose, but highlighting on some of the, zooming into some other the key, key areas.
1: OK, so are you going to, uh, are we going to see the Sri Lankan government to fall on its debt? And would that be a good thing or a bad thing?
2: In terms of our debt situation, the problem is we borrowed a lot of debt in short maturity and invested in uh, in uh, in wrong assets, I would say, like non non revenue generating assets. Uh, so uh, so that was the main that is the main problem. Uh, so I think uh, we are I mean our numbers are quite awkward. Seventy nine percent, seventy above seventy percent of government revenue is going as interest payment.
1: Seventy percent.
2: 70 percent of the revenue is going only as interest payment it is not only debt servicing only as interest payment uh, uh every year
1: so which, Jeez, i thought the uk debt was bad that's extraordinary i mean you're gonna have to default aren't you
2: <laughs> yes so it is it is quite quite a quite a vietnam And with debt servicing it comes to about 142 percent uh and i think we are quite closer to lebanon and uh, so it's not sustainable at all so uh, what, but, but, the, but, the, but, the, but our advice is, think about reforms, uh, rather than thinking about like debt restructuring that may eventually come, or like people are considering about going to IMF, of course, those all could be, uh, you know, milestones in the journey. But we got into here because of the wrong economic policy and because of lack of reforms. So, so our I'm, advice but- has always been, think of the reforms.
1: Okay, Donna, well, there's one I want to touch on. Uh, Try and explain this to our our viewers. Uh, One of your government's worst efforts, I'm told, to improve your balance of payment situation and to reduce international debt was what sounds to me like a completely harebrained scheme to save foreign currency by banning chemical fertilisers and forcing the country to become the first all-organic farming nation. A third of Sri Lankan agricultural land was left dormant last year. Food inflation hit uh, over 20% last month. Uh, The government, I'm told, has promised about $200 million in compensation to farmers and another $130, $140 million or so for subsidies in 2022. This seems like a ridiculous scheme. Is it now unravelling and being reversed?
2: The fertilizer policy hasn't been implemented uh... First of all, uh, the, the policy has a big uh, misperception that the government believed that uh, the entire country could go for organic fertilizer in full swing overnight. So it was completely uh, a disastrous uh, decision in my view. At the same time, we also had a forex crisis, so we really didn't have money also to import fertilizer. Uh, so, so both 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 situation came together and uh, as a result of course the food inflation as you mentioned uh, hit record high and uh, there have been and we are finding it uh, we are managing in a very sharp uh, in, a, in a in a very tight rope i would say on also importing some of the food items because our our yield and the harvest is declining uh, of course, that that policy contributed to uh, to an extent for the war- current crisis we are in. But having said okay. that, I must also say our agriculture is also not very productive because of the disastrous land policy, because 82% is owned by the land uh, is owned by the government. So that the technology, the productivity wasn't coming into the to the agricultural fields because of that disastrous policy and our agriculture sector is one of the uh, unproductive sectors in Sri Lanka because Uh, uh, 25% of our labor force is in agriculture, but they only contribute 8% to our GDP. Uh, So having having fertilizer few years ago, but without fertilizer, I can even predict the numbers, it will be going to be really a disaster. Uh, But the problem is we really didn't have uh, forex as well to import uh, the necessary food items. Uh, That's quite tricky. And, uh, and and that's where we are in. And the fertilizer decision, of course, uh, uh, fueled up the current crisis, additionally to COVID, additionally to the other forex problem, and additionally to the stagnation of reform program. Uh, so okay. that's how I see the situation, uh, Mark.
1: Okay, well, we were asking around a few days ago whether there was anybody at the Institute of Economic Affairs who knew about this Sri Lankan policy. And then it was pointed out to me that Matt had tweeted about it, and Matt, if you've tweeted about it, I know you're going to be a leading world expert in it, right? I mean, you're a leading world expert in most areas of policy. Explain to British viewers what's, uh, what's gone on here, Matt, what's happened with the policy, and is it as crazy as Donna and I have just implied?
3: Look, I think it's, it's almost certainly as crazy, if not, crazier. I mean, conceptually, uh, particularly for a, a relatively poorer country, to be giving up on, on modern um, agricultural techniques seems totally insane. Uh, and it had the predicted effects. I mean, there's obviously a lot, a lot of other economic issues going on in Sri Lanka at the same time, but it, it did seem to have a direct correlation with reducing... Um, agricultural productivity. That's what pesticides lie, you do. Pesticides have an important role. Um, I, I think it's also, though, an important lesson for the world is we hear a lot about organic farming and, you know, the the, the evils of modern agriculture and how terrible it is. Um, in many ways, modern agriculture is, is an absolute miracle. You know, we look at Sri Lanka, um, a country that's um, not particularly efficient in agriculture, but with something like we said about twenty five percent of the population in, in the agricultural sector in the UK. It's about one percent, and we produce far more food. And we also over time are producing more food using less fertilizer, using less water, using less land. It's all about improving efficiencies. And what, what really I, I suppose strikes me about the swine Situation, not the an exports river, is just comparing it to China's development path. Another, you know, supposedly communist country. Their first process, when they were doing the kind of market reforms in, in the eighties, was the very quietly allowing farmers um, to keep their surplus um, produce, creating kind of a, a secondary market, and then eventually privatizing a lot of the agricultural sector which increased efficiency and, and obviously before that China had huge issues with starvation and um, and, and, and famine and, and millions and millions of people dying as a result of, of socialistic policies um, that are very top down. So in terms of a development path, it seems private ownership is key. And then it seems obviously moving from an agricultural sector to an industrializing. What I'm interested about Schlenker is is there has been uh, a, a, about four times Increase in per capita GDP over the last twenty years. I'm interested to find out um, from our guests what do you, what do you think kind of led to some of that growth in recent history? Obviously, it's it's not been uh, you know ideal, and, and Sri Lanka's GDP is, is relatively low, but it's much higher than Pakistan on the poll. Is is there something Sri Lanka has done well?
1: Matt, that's a really interesting question. Let me put that to Dana and just say that stat again. GDP has gone up by a factor of what? I think about four we- times over
3: the last 20 years, maybe a little bit, maybe three to three or four times since 2000 and and compared to, to Pakistan on Nepal, a lot, of, a lot of other nearby countries um, shrunk as a, a lot more successful economy.
1: Matt, thanks for that stat. I'm glad we're moving on to more optimistic territory. Dana, explain that to us. That sounds like pretty good economic growth. I mean, obviously, everywhere in the world all of us sort of free market liberals want to go further and faster and better but wow i mean that's not bad gdp growth compared to your immediate neighbors or similar countries right
2: yes mark uh, so you need to understand a little bit about the history of sri lanka we had a we had a war for for 30 years since 1970s and it ended in 2008 so what happened was uh, we got the access for capital markets in 2007 uh, because till then we were a uh, low-income country, so we had a lot of concessional loans from all multilateral agencies and to an extent with bilateral creditors. So uh, we got the access of the commercial markets in 2007, and most of these bond payments, which was which was taken at six percent, seven percent interest rates, came to on the repayment terms uh, in 2000 uh, after 2012, uh, 13 so as you can see after that uh, during that period most of these borrowed money invested uh, in in uh, in projects as i mentioned which is non revenue generating so as a result like because of the government spending our gdp grew at about 8% at one point but it was not in the tradable sector because uh, it was it was in the gov- because of the government spending but now of course, after spending so heavily on short maturity at 6% borrowing, and now we have to pay. And now our credit rating is at double C. Literally, we, we, we really don't have access for the financial markets and we have to pay what we have borrowed in, uh, in, in the past decade. So now our, our growth was kind of like negative, of course, COVID, uh, COVID had an impact but even our growth our growth numbers was negative in the very first quarter of the covid year so that shows that the money was not very well spent and uh, we lost the access for the capital markets very recently so that was the reasoning for the high numbers but the but but of course that that increment was good but the problem was that was take but but that growth came with wrong reasoning it was not on the tradable sector the reforms were right. not done so at what at this point we the the, the sri lankans have to suffer uh, for the same reasons they enjoyed uh, some time ago and they really didn't see that crisis is coming and it was brewing every day uh, and now the situation is quite quite uh, quite i would say difficult
1: okay well listen there's there's two big issues which are really global issues that uh, every corner of the world is dealing with. One is, you know, how have we dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic? And I'm going to ask some questions about that. And the other is, what do we make of China and what should a, a sensible strategy to towards China be. Um, and to help us navigate that, um, Donna and Matt, I'll come back to you on those issues as well. Delighted to welcome to the show uh, Raina Hufers, Executive Director of the Centre for Indonesian Policy Studies. Rainer, lovely to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us, my friend. Good to see you. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm going to come on to Indonesia and its challenges and opportunities in a minute. But um, I wonder if you can Uh, help me a bit on how do you uh, how do you think that we should be approaching China? Um, I reckon maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, the uh, the broad view of those of a liberal perspective was engage, um, trade, uh, work with the Chinese, and China would continue to liberalise across the board, not just economically, but in terms of civil liberties as well. I think it would be fair to say in the United Kingdom, uh, that initial theory is coming under some considerable scrutiny, and people are actually starting to wonder whether China is uh, more of a threat than an opportunity. How do you see it from an Indonesian perspective? China obviously looms large right across the globe, but particularly in this part of it. What's your, what's your take on China, Rainer? Should we be optimistic,
4: pessimistic?
1: What should the strategy be? There you go. Easy first question.
4: Very easy. Let me solve both problems in the next two minutes. Uh, So thanks, Mark. The thing is, I am actually by training, I am a sinologist. Uh, I'm a China watcher since 1983. uh, That reveals age a little bit. So I've always been the optimist. um, But now I'm very, very concerned about what's happening under this current president in China. Um, What we see is basically going down uh, to a totalitarian country, basically. and, And you need to take that into consideration when you deal with this leadership and I'm very concerned that we must differentiate between leadership and country because that is something so important because there is a nationalist trend also in China. So we must talk about the communist party leadership versus the rest of the country. That is, I find it very important in our rhetoric. Coming from Indonesia, um, this is a region that is located strategically between the Chinese hemisphere and if you want the Western hemisphere important trade route Sri Lanka obviously Indonesia as well, so this is a, this is an area, especially Southeast Asia that is located between and therefore always wanted to stay as neutral as possible, especially Indonesia. Thailand went down the, the, the American path, so to speak uh, Cambodia very much um, with the Chinese but Indonesia always wanted to stay out Bandung conference, you may remember non alignment movement, etc, I was all oh, let's not engage now. The Chinese are expanding economically. That's their right, and that's what they should be doing in a way. That's a good thing, giving us cheaper products and also some new technology coming from them now. What we see in this region here is that the US and also the European engagement is not strong enough. Um, It's sometimes characterized as fly-in, fly-out diplomacy. Southeast Asia smiles. There is a foreign minister coming. Obviously, they want something. Something brewed up in Beijing or somewhere else, somebody's gonna fly in and talk to us how we need to close ranks. But when it's not happening, nobody's here. Uh, and this, I can also say from when I'm engaging with leaders in, or, or, or parties or, or political factors in Europe, how disinterested they are in the region, basically. And never mind, there is an Indo-Pac- Indo-Pacific strategy now, European Union, America as well. But I think it has to really be taken seriously. And, uh, and that's, I believe, where I need. Really
1: in. interesting. So you actually think that some of this is that the West needs to show more ambition and outreach to places like Sri Lanka, Indonesia and Asia in general, We're we're sort of we're um, ignoring you and just being a bit too introspective, you'd say right yeah? now.
4: That's right, or focusing on other issues. Obviously, there are important issues, right? I mean, you don't want to talk to anybody in politics at the moment in Europe, it would be about the Ukraine, which is absolutely necessary and important topic to discuss, but there is there are other regions. there are other issues in the world and Southeast Asia plays an important role here. So yeah, so, absolutely.
1: Donna, on the Chinese question, uh, y- your thoughts as well. A, b- a big story going back uh, a few years, I think it was 2017, 2018, the Chinese government um, effectively forced Sri Lanka to give up a port to cover debts owed uh, to the Chinese export banks. The Chinese government lent Sri Lanka bit over 300 million US dollars. Uh, to fund the project, Sri Lanka had to use a preferred Chinese company to build it, the debt expanded and expanded and expanded. You've been talking about that more generally in terms of Sri Lankan finances. When the government couldn't pay the interest on it, the Chinese government insisted that a Chinese company take on majority shareholding and gain uh, access to 15,000 acres of land surrounding the port. What's uh, the Sri Lankan view of how we should approach relations with China, Dana?
2: Yes, Mark. So uh, China and uh, there's a there's a big geopolitical uh, geopolitical battle also, which is known uh, in this region. So for Sri Lanka, for a country like Sri Lanka, India is like the big brother of our culture, and uh, most of our history has been influenced uh, also by the by by India. At the same time, now China is coming with their uh, Belgian Road initiative, and we have quite close. Uh, quite close bilateral trade uh, and, uh, and, and negotiations with China. Uh, so I think uh, how, how people perceive is uh, China, and uh, anyway, Sri Lankans generally have a very, very negative perception towards working with other countries, they are not very open-minded, they always see some conspiracy, some westerners, China is trying to overtake, India is trying to intervene and all that. Maybe because our history is we have uh, we have been invaded uh, by, by British, by Portuguese, by Dutch, uh, and we have a quite a bit of history. And of course, we had quite recent uh, also bad experiences, like a 30-year long war thereafter, even post-independence, and there was the Easter Sunday attack. Likewise, our history, the memory has not been very positive uh, uh, with working with different parties. So that is a challenge in the first place but at the same time uh, when it comes to the the debt or like the bilateral investments with other countries uh, basically we have a we had a very good relationship with japan and even in terms of a bilateral debt it's about 10% which is like the main creditor for sri lanka and which came like for a very low interest and for a longer maturity period like 20 years 30 years and uh, of course this is also coming when when i think some of the countries trying to impose uh, trade restrictions on on japan it was a sri lankan then president who requested the global states that let's not do that let's embrace japan and let's work with everybody and i think they still consider uh, that has a favor that sri lanka really uh, took on stage uh, on behalf of japan uh, okay. when it comes to china our 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 bilateral uh, debt is somewhat equal to japan but it's slightly lower than japan but about 8% of that debt is coming from the China Exim Bank, which is at very high interest rates. So, the example that you took on, uh, on, the, on the Hambantota port, uh, likewise, most of this debt has been taken on commercial interest rates and invested, as I mentioned, on non revenue generating assets or like projects. Uh, so, that's where the concern came for a lot of Sri Lankans whether we are really uh getting uh whether we invested on the right projects uh okay. so i think the i think that's the that's the concern for in the political circles on on civil society activists. whether are we investing it in it it in right assets or whether do we get like some sort of an influence to invest it in wrong assets and like to make it like a debt trap sort of a thing so that's okay. where the, the the concern came in but my view is given the size of our economy and given the given the given the dynamics, we have to interact with all all countries and like definitely India uh, and Japan uh, and US mainly but India and Japan makes a uh, have a bigger impact. But now they are also like like a movement called Quad where India, Japan, US and Australia in one in, in one side and China is on the other side. Uh, so for us, like a small country, as you mentioned in the Heritage Foundation Economic Freedom Index, as well as the the Fraser Institute Economic Freedom of the World Index, we are p- performing very poorly on global trade. I mean, on Fraser Institute Index, we are at 149 out of 165 countries on on freedom for trade. So for us, we have to trade with each other, uh, oh. and China is one of our main importers. Uh, for okay. us to be Competitive with the exports, we have to work with China. But I, I, I go with Rainer. We have to be very careful when we say China, the people of China versus the leaders. We have to make that. Uh, we have to make that demarcation or distinguish, uh, distinguishment between those two. But for us, we have to interact with everyone. Is my view.
1: Okay, Matt. I want to come to you uh, very uh, quickly on this. Can you, um, Matt, talk to us about? Uh, where you are on a hawkish or dovish approach to China and whether, you know, actually the more dovish and engagement approach might not have yielded the results that some optimists wanted. And also, can you take on Rainer's challenge, this sort of fly-in, fly-out diplomacy? I thought the whole point of Brexit was we were going to be a kind of global Britain that would extend our horizons, reaching out to the world, places like Sri Lanka and Indonesia. Sounds from our friends um, that we're not doing a particularly good job of that just now.
3: No, I mean, I don't think that there's ever doing enough of a, a successful diplomatic approach. I mean, I think that the China question though, just, just to that first, um, is, is quite fascinating. Australia's relationship with China has very much trans- transfigurated in, in recent years. There was a lot of optimism through the 2000s that effectively Australia didn't have to choose between its traditional security defense partnership with the US and then kind of building economic relations with China. Um, Since particularly around 2006, security laws, in the policy set, there was a lot of concern about um, uh, Xi and and a more aggressive China. And then particularly since COVID, that's very much blown up when Australia um, questioned where COVID had come from and and called for an independent investigation before any other country. And you can really see in the the attitudes of the public Australia when it comes to China have changed. So Lowy Institute... Uh, foreign policy think tank do um, regular surveys of Australian attitudes and in 2018 they found 82 percent of people believed that China was more of an economic partner than a security threat um, versus just 12 people who thought China was a security threat in the latest poll um, last year 63 percent of Australians thought China was a security threat so now the general consensus in Australia is that China is a serious security threat and more or less of an economic partner that said though of course australia still trades a lot with china and even amongst even with all the um restrictions put up uh, Australia i think it's had some like a record year of trade with china particularly with iron ore so th- there is kind of a still a strong economic relationship it's a very tense political relationship and there's been a lot of demands from uh china a- against um the, the uh, australia about um, a bunch of different issues um i, I think there's a, a probably a want to calm things down a bit but at the same time, you've got AUKUS, Australia signing up with the UK and the US, um, and, and you've got uh, a lot of efforts like the Quad in order to counter China. So I think that's very much Australia's foreign policy um, path at the moment.
1: Donna, we're going to say goodbye to you shortly. I just want in a couple of sentences, uh, no more than that, because time is ticking. Uh, are you out of the of the COVID pandemic crisis yet? Are you out the other side in Sri Lanka? And, uh, I mean, I, I must admit, I was actually hugely impressed about how quickly I got through Colombo Airport. I thought I was going to be stuck there for hours. I mean, there was endless bureaucracy. I had forms coming out of my ears that I had to fill in and QR codes, but I got through the airport pretty quickly. Um, is Sri Lanka out of the other side of this crisis at last? Just in a sentence, or two, Donna
2: we have done really well uh, on covid front because our vaccination uh, rates were very high uh, of course we have a public uh, healthcare system which uh, with our vaccination rates are high and also in tourism because since we have a uh, forex crisis tourism is one of our main uh, forex earners so we had to re- release that uh, regulatory barrier so even if you have like i think a, a pcr test of Seventy-two hours prior, you can just, uh, just uh, you know, easily uh, get the immigration cleared and uh, and and into the country. So in that front, actually, we have done quite well. But our death numbers are comparatively low. But we have about like compared to our twenty million population, about thirteen thousand uh, uh, to fifteen thousand deaths. Uh, but I think we have done quite well in terms of the COVID front. Uh, as, as I see, uh, Mark.
1: Okay. Donna, it's been great to have you on the show. I'm glad to be doing my tiny little bit as a, as a tourist in your beautiful country to try and improve GDP growth and your, and your trade deficit. It's lovely to be here. Beautiful country. Donna, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Mark. Cool. Uh, Thank you. Pleasure to have you and good luck in all your endeavors. Raina, let me come back to you. I want to talk a bit about Indonesia. Uh, we'll put up for our viewers a slide on the screen. Uh, I think most will know largest island nation in the world, largest Muslim country in the world. Uh, population 270 million. Uh, I don't know where that puts it on the chart, about the sixth largest country in the world, something like that, you'll be able to correct me, GDP per capita, 5,000 US dollars, inflation only 2% at the moment, Uh, about 150,000 deaths, a bit shy of that from COVID on the last numbers uh, I looked at, Rainer. Tell us the story of Indonesia, because I think for some this could be the next super-duper kind of Asian power, right? And uh, as you say, we might be fly-in, fly-out diplomacy, but we should be taking rather more
4: notice of Indonesia, no? I couldn't agree more, thanks for saying that. Uh, It's the fourth largest country in the world by population, right after the United States. And the dimensions east-west also equal roughly San Francisco to New York. So it's, it's a huge country. Um, and, uh, yeah, it doesn't get the attention it deserves, but that's partly also the fault of the country because they should get out more on the international stage and represent itself. It is actually a success story. I mean, you heard from Dana about the great things that happened in Sri Lanka in terms of GDP growth. Indonesia is also a success story. You know, Asian tigers, Indonesia was always aspiring to be among those. Um, It has become an upper-middle-income country right before COVID hit, then it took a dip. But generally speaking, you know, that was a remarkable success. And look at poor people. For me, it's always about free markets must work for the poor. So poverty headcount, that, me- that means a lot to me, has come down from 20% in 2000 to 10% now. So halved when the population grew by 70 million people at the same time. So that means uh, millions and millions of people are now able to earn a living. So all of mm-hmm. this is basically a good story here. But there are so problems. What, I guess, GD- coming to
1: those? Uh, ignoring the last couple of years, which has obviously been pretty grim across the, the world because of COVID, right? Now, what what's the uh, what's GDP growth been in, in Indonesia then? Over, I mean, Asian tide levels five, six, seven percent, something like that.
4: Not quite that, but yeah, absolutely uh, around five percent. The target was always to get to seven percent, but five percent was roughly uh, what was achieved. And again, that's not bad when you look at so many other economies over the years.
1: Okay, so, so what reforms are needed? You're, I'm, I'm delighted we're moving to a more kind of upbeat and optimistic part of the show now, right? Because uh, uh, Diana gave us a pretty grim picture of some of the problems. But the, uh, your, your institute, Centre for Indonesian Policy Studies, and we'll have a link to, to you guys in the show notes below, you won the coveted Templeton Freedom Award in, in 2020 for your work on the removal of trade barriers in Indonesia's food sector. Tell us about that and tell us about the reforms that that you at CIPS are pushing for and advocating. And are you pushing water uphill or are you finding you're pushing water downhill?
4: How's it feeling? OK, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, that was an amazing moment for us to win that award. That was really also a game changer for us. Uh, the thing is that you know we want to promote open markets. And as I said earlier, it has to work for the poor. I mean, if it only works for an urban elite, that doesn't do the trick, especially not in a rural country that still has rather low incomes. So we need to pick a topic that actually uh, resonates with people. And the topic that we identified is food, food prices, and agriculture this is such an important uh, topic in the country dana was just now speaking about fertilizer issues stuff like that so we've we started with basically comparing prices the amount of money you pay for apples in this country is far higher than in any european supermarket that can't be right Uh, the amount of money you pay for rice soy or all the the staple foods and everything far above world market price it's twice as high three times as high It's a huge country, as I said earlier. So it's very inward looking. You know, ask an American in the central part of the States what the prices are in comparison to Europe. They would never know. Same in Indonesia. It's such a huge country. They wouldn't know what's happening in other countries. So we keep telling them you're paying more than Singapore. Singapore is far richer in absolute terms. You're paying more than in Singapore. That can't be right. And Singapore is importing everything. So we are suggesting imports can help that was initial stage, and that's where we recommended reforms reducing all the bureaucratic requirements uh, recommendations letters from the Ministry of Agriculture licenses from the Ministry of Trade uh, all uh, done case by case and not in an automated licensing licensing system, so you can imagine that opens all gates for fraud uh, corruption, etc. So we we address this and we managed to actually. persuade the government to actually review some of these regulations. We calculated altogether that if they would fully liberalize the food trade, Indonesian poor only could save $6 billion a year. Wow. Um, and you can imagine what that would do to their lives. Due to the reforms that we believe we have helped to trigger, at least it went down by $2 billion, not only for the poor, but for the, general, uh, the population in general. So it had an impact, and that's why we were able to win
1: that award. And and was the underlying problem uh, tariff barriers or non-tariff barriers, a mixture of the two? I mean, it's that Indonesia has not been sufficiently open to global trade is the the problem. But was that this licensing system or huge taxes, tariffs on imports, or a bit of both?
4: Uh, You start... With a cultural story really after 400 years of colonial rule, the country really wanted to be independent, also in all its supplies food supplies in particular right the founding president right at the beginning 1945 said, we shall not be dependent on other countries food. Uh, understandable coming from foreign oppression and for such a long time, but of course economically not rational not sound. So this attitude we're still dealing with. So people say naturally, we should only eat Indonesian food. Uh, and we're saying this doesn't make sense. And it's not the case. Just look at it, where the food is coming from. It's not the case. So it's a, it's a cultural, it's a historic uh, 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 thing that we are facing. But then in technical terms, you are right. It's a mix. It's mostly non-tariff measures because we all agree nowadays on reduced tariffs and so on, all of that. The non-tariff ones are the nasty ones that are very hard to actually grasp and some of them are necessary when it comes to sanitary controls, etc, and others are not pre shipment inspections and other things could be much, much, much more effective and less costly so and that's what we're where we're putting the focus we're trying to calculate and show to the government, if you only reduce this. We were already able to bring down the food prices in this country regulations like which ports are allowed to actually have imports coming from other countries. you know, This doesn't make sense. I mean, and that you end up, of course, with the central ports, but what about those ports and regions of Indonesia that are far away and have no access to global trade because of it, um, and they pay the highest food prices. So these are the things we are addressing.
1: Uh, before we move on to Australasia, Rona, how has um, Indonesia dealt with the, the COVID pandemic? Uh, what sort of restrictions or lockdowns have been imposed? Do you think uh, the government over there has taken a balanced approach or too restrictive or too slow? Tell us the picture of um, dealing with the uh, COVID problem. And again, the question I asked to Adana, are you through the worst of it now? You know, is the end in sight or is the end even here? You know, is it over? Is it now an historical episode or is it an ongoing
4: crisis? No, actually we're bracing at the moment everybody is extremely nervous at the moment cases case numbers are doubling the issue is of course are case numbers still the relevant measure uh, this is also being discussed here should it be uh, hospitalization rates etc but as a matter of fact we're now at about 30 40,000 cases a day and i think it'll go up to a few hundred thousand cases a day just because omicron has not fully hit the country and everybody is bracing for the impact. So no, we're not, we're not done with that. That's unfortunately still coming our way. But all in all, I don't think the country had a bad way to respond. I mean, there were lots of issues with getting the vaccines in the country. Everything could have been done in a better way. But generally speaking, India set a very bad example right at the beginning of the, um, of the COVID pandemic. You might remember the images that we saw on TV about India when they tried a lock a hard lockdown on people who live of their daily income they sell a little bit and that with that money, they immediately buy the food. How are they supposed to be locked at home? You know, It won't work. And Indonesia has a similar situation. So the government saw this and knew we can't go that way. So it never happened. Of course, there were all these restrictions uh, in place that actually had a heavy toll on the country. We had seen millions falling again under the poverty line in 2020, but we saw a, a certain recovery already in 2021. So all in all, I must say, I felt at least it was a measured approach that was undertaken. Civil civil liberties were not cut, except that, of course, you weren't able to enjoy all the facilities that you usually would be able to to enjoy. And we have another factor in Indonesia, and that was we had this horrible Asian financial crisis 20 years ago, a few more than 20 years, 1998. And at that time, Indonesia it was so badly hit with uh, 90% uh, debt over GDP and these kind of things. And Indonesia has, from then on, really done its whole work. It brought down debt over GDP to about 10 15%. It brought, well, we, I mean, we, we need
1: that magic recipe. We could do with that in the United <laughs> Kingdom.
4: We had excellent finance ministers, I must really say, that were really careful. The, the, the fiscal deficit was always between about one5 to 2.5% ever since the crisis back then. So all of this was under control. Now, being in German, a German by, by, uh, by nationality, um, I appreciate that you save in time so that when the crisis hit, you actually have money. And, and Indonesia in a way has done that. So with this kind of debt over GDP and fiscal deficit, when it got worse, now we were at, it, it really jumped to 6.5 fiscal deficit. Uh, But that's only in one year and the government is determined to bring it back below 3% um, in 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 two years or so, and we are in the debt over GDP we're still only at about 40% Uh, so this is still much more for a developing country than for a European nation, for example, but still I mean we're talking about reasonable. Well, I, I,
1: I want us to improve our fly in, fly out diplomacy, <laughs> uh, because it looks like we've got quite a lot to learn from Indonesia on fiscal prudence, Rainer, really, in, <laughs> in the UK and the, the Western world. Rainer, it's been great to have you with us. Uh, thanks for all the great work you do in in Indonesia. I hope to have you back on the programme soon. And thanks for that. Um, giving us uh, something to be a bit optimistic about, I think. And uh, we just need to raise our sights a little in the Western world and I think engage rather better. But it's been great having you on the show, Rainer. See you again yeah, soon in here. person, I hope. Uh, all so the sweet. best. Thank uh, you. So we go. Bye-bye. We're we're going to move on now to New Zealand and Australia, Australasia. This is going to be the tricky part of the show because I've got Matt and Ozzy on and I'm delighted uh, to be joined um, by the Executive Director of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, Jordan Williams, but having a Kiwi and an Aussie on for the last 20 minutes. I mean, this could get pretty messy, right? Um, but let's, uh, let's have a look at some of the uh, New Zealand statistics. I mean, probably a country known um, rather better to us in the UK than Sri Lanka and Indonesia, especially for those of you who are fans of Lord of the Rings or, um, or the sport of rugby. Or egg chasing, as I call it. I'm, I'm, in, I, I'm a fan of the other of code of, uh, of football. Uh, population, 5 million. GDP, 243 billion. GDP per capita, about 47,000 US dollars. Inflation, well, similar problems in New Zealand to those that we're facing in the United Kingdom, uh, touching 6%. Uh, COVID death toll, very small, but border status uh, closed. Jordan, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, uh, my friend. Great to have you with us. Give us your take. How are things in Kiwiland just at the moment? And uh, when might uh, any of us be able to visit you in the future? This year, next year, sometime next decade?
0: Well, I think it will be this year, um, Mark. And can I just say, it's great to see you. It is events like this that remind me how tough it's been to be uh, stuck in paradise at the bottom of the world. Uh, I actually know Rainer pretty well. He was uh, the facilitator of a, uh, it was called the Think Tank MBA I did in the US um, a number of years ago. And um, I am really looking forward to catching up with you, Mark and, and your team when Jacinda Ardern finally lets us out. So let me just take a step back on the, on the COVID question. New Zealand was pretty unique because we've got an enormous Uh, moat around us, our closest country, Australia, it's still two and a half, three hour flight uh, away. Uh, And really what all this government was good at was locking us down, drawing up the the, the drawbridge. uh, We had a very tough lockdown, probably one of the toughest, if not the toughest in the world, certainly the toughest in any Western uh, democracy. And I think probably only possible because New Zealand, uh, we're not a, probably that's changing um, uh, now, but not very polarized and New Zealanders certainly came together. We did an elimination strategy, um, but then it became clear that either New Zealand was the smartest country in the world or the dumbest, but we're probably not gonna know for a very long time as to which one it is. Now, of course, the Delta and then Omicron comes along And it's just impossible to, you know, keep the genie out of the bottle. Uh, And the real challenge that the government has now is you've got a population that uh, the the, the average Kiwi is worried about this uh, COVID thing. And we had our record number of cases a few days ago, and it was um, only about 250. Um, And that was the scariest day New Zealand's had. Um, But because we just haven't had it, In New Zealand, uh, it's now the threat of the unknown. And the problem that the government has is actually want to open up for the rest of the world, but it's proving politically very difficult to do because they've been scaring the populace uh, for what the uh, um, coming up two years.
1: Well, uh, let me put you the hypothesis, Jordan, that you're the dumbest country in the world, if I may. <laughs> um, I, I, I was just looking at those stats again. COVID death toll in New Zealand is 53. I mean, terrible for those 53 people. But uh, I mean, maybe these restrictions have kept, you know, the illness and, and mortality rates down. But I mean, this is... not well, I mean, t- more, t- people, more on- people drown in our rivers or at beaches than 53 yeah. so w- why, why not ban people going into water then if you're um you know if you're worried it, it just it, my impression this seems like a monumental overreaction now i get the island thing i get what? that it's kind of easier to stop people moving in and out than it is on say you know mainland europe for sake of argument. so that the possibility of those like complete lockdown restrictions but why is it that you Kiwis, so i thought were made a sterner stuff are up in arms about this. This seems to me to be an absolutely incredible restriction on your civil liberties and your economic freedom. I don't know how badly this has hit the New Zealand economy for um, a problem that
0: is not on the sort of scale that most of the rest of the world has experienced. I'm gonna play a little bit devil's advocate uh, here because I'm not a fan of our, uh, our particular strategy. But that said, remember, right at the beginning, we didn't know how scary this thing was. And it was probably rational, and Australia did the same thing, to bring the drawbridge up. We successfully eliminated it and had, up until the second half of last year, when Delta came along, uh, almost no restrictions. I mean, you've got to wear the masks on public transport. But except for those first months we, we had, or two months where we had the very harsh lockdown, we lived in relative freedom. And uh, compared to, you know, we didn't have waves or anything like that. We just lived without COVID normal lives and looked in bewilderment at what was going on the rest of the world. That said, the government sort of got ready as every Western government did right at the beginning to this economic Armageddon and put New Zealand economy on absolute sugar money. We were only number two behind the US in terms of the economic stimulus the government, um, as a proportion of the economy. But of course, we didn't have the wholesale shutdowns over the extended periods of time uh, that um, a lot of the rest of the world had. What that has meant is that we have enormous inflation, um, just out in December, a 5.9% annualized inflation, which, you know, we are uh, New Zealand led the world with um, uh, single policy targeting of inflation from the Reserve Bank. Uh, And yet now, unfortunately, you know, the the bad old days of inflation, the impacts that has on inequality are back. And just in terms of growth of government, you know, since Jacinda Ardern was elected in 2017, the government is now 41% larger. Now, that is an enormous hangover to have. And what organisations such as mine here at the, the Taxpayers Union is that that hangover, because if only that expansion of government was good quality spending but um, as i'm sure you'll appreciate mark you know governments aren't very good at that when they're literally printing yeah the empirical record isn't
1: great um, can you give me any to... examples of good government spending i mean usually <laughs> it's pretty inefficient and unproductive usually uh, compared to the private sector well, that's interesting i want to come back to the to the wider economic non covid issues in a minute but Matt, let me let me come to you look i mean I'm disappointed with both you and Jordan, to be honest. You know, you guys down in Australasia, New Zealand, you're, you're supposed to be, you know, I guess in Australia, I've still got memories of Crocodile Dundee, you know, stuff like this should just be a mere flesh wound. Who's been. Who's been the dumbest country in the world for you, Matt? Has it been, and Australia has been, you know, pretty strict as well. I know you, you yourself have been caught up in lockdowns in your native country. What's your take of it there? I gather at last Australia's going to open the borders in a couple of weeks' time. But, wow, what restrictions you've had.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to be a little bit of a, a patriot here for a moment and say a few things in, in defence of Australia. Which I know is not a particularly popular view um, on, on the free market side overseas. But uh, Australia has, um, in, in a similar way, although slightly less successfully than New Zealand, managed to keep deaths from COVID um, relatively low by global standards. And it used its natural advantages. It made some good strategic choices. Australia, and you might not remember, but in February 2020, at the start of February 2020, um, banned anyone who'd been in China in the last two weeks. We were told by the World Health Organization at the time, um, because Trump did it, that that was racist policy. It was actually a good policy. Uh, Australia then also introduced border quarantine measures, and and much, actually, probably to the surprise of Australian policymakers, managed to effectively suppress the virus. Um, and eliminate it temporarily. And that meant for for most Australians over the last two years, for most of the time, um, they've lived in in relative freedom and prosperity without lockdowns, that many COVID deaths. Now the failure here though, was a failure to procure and vaccinate fast enough although that issue is now being resolved. Um, And then the secondary failure, I think this is where the, the point we're getting to now is a failure to move on. Um, and New Zealand's got this much worse because New Zealand hasn't had a major wave of COVID. Um, Australia over the last uh, month or so has had actually quite significant COVID numbers. At one point, some of the highest COVID rates per capita in the world, over 100,000 cases per day in Australia. But because Australia was already vaccinated by that point, it's led to relatively few deaths. Australia's reopening, the borders are reopening. The one exception is Western Australia, which is the kind of effectively, uh, just in Gerard equivalent of Australia under Mark McGowan, a Labour Premier. So overall, the, the, the struggle is not... Um, necessarily the, the initial strategy was a failure, although some lockdowns were too harsh and mean and, and unnecessary. Um, overall, I think it's, it's proven quite a success. Um, the point about Australian psychology is quite interesting. And is Australia this, you know, freedom loving, you know, rejecting authority land? I mean, it's, it's, it's I think it's, it's a common myth that Australia was founded by convicts, it was actually founded by uh, convict masters, that the people who are uh, who, who responsible oh, for the managing the convicts. Every, everyone prisoners. likes to message
0: yeah. the history. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. And I think it's an interesting fact that the most Australians that don't really dissemble on convicts, it's, it's, it's a, you know, the early history was a mixture of European immigration. Um, and there's always been a bit of its dependence on the state and not much of, like, a philosophical, uh, maybe from the free market side of things occasionally, but not much of a philosophical objection to the existence of the state. So Australians say they hate the state, Um, and and talk against it quite a lot, but also willing to accept its dictates um, quite willingly. Um, And and I think that's come out during COVID if they think it's in the interest. It's, It's all very utilitarian here. If they think it's kind of justifiable, you know, Australia has compulsory um, helmet laws, for example. Now, I don't think you can justify that on, on a harm's principle basis. because The only person I'm harming by not wearing a helmet is myself. But yet that seems to be a kind of collectivist policy. And there's there's a bunch of policies like that in Australia that are quite nanny statists and interventionists. Unfortunately, it's not quite the land of the free um, that, that we might hope for.
1: Jordan, let me come back to you. Uh, I, I haven't looked up New Zealand or Australia in these, uh, you know, international indexes of, of freedom, but Basically, you guys tend to perform pretty well. You tend to be in the top uh, half a dozen or so. You were mentioning sort of things now drifting in the wrong direction, highest inflation rate in 30 years, Um, problems uh, that seem to uh, echo in the UK as well on property prices. Uh, Median rent uh, of property in New Zealand went up 25% between 2017 and 2021. That's quite a hike. And our average house prices have increased by 60% over that period. Um, it seems, I mean, are you are you were you starting towards the top of the table, but are you worried you're now drifting in the wrong direction in terms of the overall economic picture? I think you also said under the Arden government that we've seen government spending increase by 40%. I mean, that's colossal. I appreciate some of that might be COVID-dependent, but all of this is a trajectory that we free market liberals should be pretty worried about, right?
0: Oh, I think it's the most worrying time, for the freedom movement, um, certainly in, in my lifetime. It's actually interesting, you, you mentioned the housing prices going up by 60%, 50, um, 58 I had, since this government was elected. And the irony is, is Jacinda Ardern was elected to fix the housing problem. It's a classic illustration of just across so many areas of public policy, this government is comms-led but in terms of what they're delivering, has just been a disaster for New Zealand's economic prosperity. Jordan, so, can you I mean, talk to you know, about Kiwi build. I'm I'm fascinated by this. Oh yeah, uh, oh, it's just failure. yeah, it's just yeah. But literally, uh, uh, was elected on this promise that was going to build a hundred thousand homes, and in the space of six years, it's built about um, twelve hundred. Like, I mean, it's 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 just it's just so like laughably bad. Um, the gap between what is promised and what is delivered by this government. I mean, it's like carbon uh, um, emissions was the other big thing. They come into government, they make this dramatic out of nowhere. They ban oil and gas exploration, totally remove the confidence of um, the sector. And instead, our emissions from energy went up dramatically the last few years because we've got power stations instead of running on gas and now importing the worst coal in the world. Sorry. uh, sorry, Indonesia, but that's where it comes from. Um, and it's just classic, like, you know, comms led government, you know, that's what Jacinda Ardern's very much sort of, it's all about image, it's not thoughtful um, public policy. Our um, Just going back to um, Matthew's comments, um, I thought that was the, the the point about helmets is really interesting because of course, one of the things that as clearly I work in the economics area as, um, as you guys do, at the freedom discussions around um vaccination or quasi compulsory vaccination by using things that like we vaccine passes here i mean we don't make you get a vaccine but basically we stop you living your life um if you're you allowed to go one, yeah. to yeah if you don't get one and i think helmets actually is the, is the parallel i've been looking for because it is it's about um i know one of your former guests on a huge fan of kate andrews um wrote for the spectator and said that you know well at what point do we have a public health system that serves us versus us having to support the public health um, system? So there's just across the um, freedom divide, and I know that reasonable minds can differ on, um, uh, on the vaccine stuff, but in terms of freedom, we are going downhill. New Zealand has been, uh, we are always top of the charts in terms of perceptions of corruption, that one was out last week. Uh, and economic freedom, um, uh, easiness or ease of doing business. Um, Let me tell you, running a a taxpayers' union at the bottom of the world, those bloody charts that the likes of the IEA and Heritage make make my job that much harder because there is a real complacency in New Zealand at the moment about, you know, that we are so good. And, you look where New Zealand came from. You know, we were the socialist republic through the 70s and early 80s, literally were hours from calling in the IMF, we were so stuffed, went through what took a generation under Thatcher or Reagan and um, various both Labor and Liberal governments in Australia. We had that basically overnight in a Labor government that led the world on a lot of these reforms in terms of getting us back into the black, in terms of inflation targeting um, and um, Reserve Bank, in terms of our Fiscal Responsibility Act, which led the world um, uh, under um, former uh, Minister of Finance, Ruth Richardson, which I should plug, just joined our board. Um, uh, And yet, since the early 90s, the reform has stopped. And we have just drifted. The Jacinda Ardern government, because of the popularity over COVID, the first time under our electoral system which we've had since 90, 1996 has got a full majority we've got no upper house no house of lords or, or, or senate equivalent and the mask is off for the first time in my lifetime we are going backwards really fast um, just as I, I i you know i wasn't joking when i said earlier across every area of public policy this government is not wasting the opportunity and they learned the lesson from those reforms in the 1980s that you swamped the opposition. And our job in um, groups like the Taxpayers Union or um, your sort of equivalents around Tufton Street, Mark, is that we sort of have a bit of a saying that we've got, we got to pick fights in order to take public policy forward or to um, or, or, or to um, prevent reversal. Is we going yep. to pick fights. Right yep. now, it's actually the opposite that you're so swamped you are having to pick them at the other meaning of what the heck is the most important because we are spread so thin. Uh, yep. So I am i don't mean to be pessimistic, but um, and in terms of um, the prosperity of um, my children, I really fear that New Zealand is going to go back to where we were in the 60s and 70s. So I've got an
1: idea for you then, maybe this would uh, help concentrate minds. We need a new freedom index, which isn't about the spot price, but it's about the trajectory, right? Uh, so if yeah. you're actually moving in the wrong direction at speed, that that would be highlighted. You might still be towards the top of the table, but Jordan, you're right, that that would imply if you stay on that trajectory, things are going to get pretty bleak. Obviously, uh, think tanks like the IA are in, in the idea and policy business rather than the kind of politics business. But am I right, Jordan, that in party politics, uh, in, in your neck of the woods, but uh, we've seen a pretty spectacular rise of the of the ACT party, a pretty free market party uh, that was associated with those sort of Thatcher-Reagan-esque uh, reforms. Used to be led by Jamie White, who's now um, back as a That's senior fair. academic fellow at the IEA. And as I keep pointing out to Jamie White, as soon as he left the leadership of ACT, it started to zoom upwards. So. Um, that, isn't that some sign, Jordan, that there is at least a cohort of voters in New Zealand who are worried about the state being too big, spending being too high, uh, taxpayers not being, uh, properly accounted for in public policy considerations?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, it did very well at the last election because our main opposition party, our Tories, the New Zealand National Party, uh, did, was just... Abysmal. They went through successive leadership changes. They literally had a leader that had a nervous breakdown um, only a few months before the election, um, having toppled a um, a, a leader that was probably on um, on the path to actually beating Jacinda Ardern. But then COVID, just as it has with many opposition parties, just wiped them out. Uh, Act peaked at. So we have a. I mentioned earlier our weird electoral system that. We imported bizarrely from the Germans, the mixed member proportion uh, system, which is a um, European-style um, party vote uh, regime. Act uh, peaked at peak to 18.5% in polling last year. The Nats have now gone to a sort of pretty uh, uh, more credible, It's the former chief executive of of New Zealand uh, leader, and active come right back down to um, to about 11%, 10%, depending on the polls um, or which poll um, you choose. Ours, of course, being the most credible. Uh, but I think when Jane was there, it was more like sort of 1%. Now, that's not a criticism yeah, of Jamie. He, nice. he inherited, a, yep. he inherited a, a, a pretty sick animal, um, uh, but managed to keep it on life support. And as his, his leader, which in fairness, I'm pretty sure... Uh, Jamie recruited, um, his successor has gone on and really uh, rebuilt that party. Okay. Well, Jordan, don't give him any more credit. Jamie's going to claim all the credit anyway. You know? <laughs> um,
1: Matt, let me come forget, back to you. I forget What's all the, the connections of...
0: that you guys have to New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, yeah, I, I... That's right. Well, that's right. Uh, no, yeah. very, very strong to example, get you and Sir Kiwi on our payroll as well. Exactly. Exactly, and it was good to hear. Uh, it was good to uh, hear his voice when he um, called to ask. Um, we'll certainly have to get you, you guys, down here once we're opening. I think that um, we will open earlier than what the uh, government is saying, which is middle of this year. New Zealand citizens, for the first time, in over in two years, will be actually be able to return to New Zealand uh, at uh, the end of well, the end of this month. Um, which means that of course, New Zealanders will be able to go overseas. But we've had this before when we've opened up with Australia, but then the government shuts the borders again. And literally there is just heartbreaking stories of Kiwis yeah. stuck in Australia. They've been out of the country too long, so they stopped getting their pension or whatever. And you've got no way to get back in. This yeah. um, the, the charade was showing up pretty badly for the government. When and it was because it was sort of someone of the intelligentsia class, but a New Zealand journalist with with some notoriety, um, worked for Al Jazeera and various um, uh, broadcasts, uh, news channels around the world, was pregnant, and wanted to come back to New Zealand to have her baby, and the government was stuffing around and, and said no. And the Taliban, or she arranged with the Taliban To go to Afghanistan and get refuge there to have her baby, and you can imagine that the liberal elite here just went ape over it, and rightfully so. But that is the single story that sort of hit the Guardian, hit the BBC, etc. Well, it shows you as well. I
1: mean. Sometimes, you know, I'm prone to pointing out how farcical and stupid some of the regulations have been. But you're right to point out, Jordan, that they can also be horrific in consequence, not just laughable. Yeah. Um, pretty grim. Matt, let me come back to you. What, what's the picture in Australia where there's a, uh, a liberal national government? I think there's an upcoming uh, election. Is the, the path there, the trajectory in the right, the wrong direction or flatlining? What's your, what's your take on it from a kind of market orientated you know, wanting to get taxes under, you know, down and public spending under control. Reasons to be hopeful or reasons to be pessimistic or too early to say, Matt.
3: <laughs> Always too early to say in the great Always scheme of history, Mark. Say, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'll leave with the stories as aside. the side, but I, I think it probably flatlining would be the answer. Australia went through, I mean, some of the UK and New Zealand, a great reform era, but that really ended, you know, certainly by the late Howard era, um, in 2007 and we've had a although a, a, just like the UK we've had a central right government for almost a year now uh, so almost 10 years now um, and it doesn't seem like you can really point to any major reforms or major achievements from a, from a free market perspective It shows it's not a majorly more prosperous place. They've done relatively well in terms of cutting some taxes. That's nice. You can do that when the economy's growing. Um, they, they, they almost got back into surplus and then COVID destroyed that. I think with the election coming up though, um and 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 Jordan just put in the in the chat, I think accurately, SCOMO is screwed. Sorry
1: mate. Scott Morrison um, is screwed. Sorry mate. Scott Morrison <laughs> is screwed. I mean
3: my I, I think the standard view to have and, and although this was the standard view to have also last election was that Labour it's it's effectively their turn um they're, they're up in the polls it was Scormo last called. time mate.
1: it was last time i thought it was last time though sc-
3: scoma pulled uh, uh you know a hat out of the out of the um uh bag and uh, the way around, out they out uh, and, and managed <laughs> a, a, a victory but it was a very narrow victory i mean there's only a couple of seats and and there's you know there's the, you look at just look at the electoral maths. the seats we lost in Western Australia. It's not clear that he's doing well enough in um, New South Wales and Queensland to pick up enough seats. You've got Victoria where it doesn't really perform very well. Tasmania is pretty small. It, is, it just doesn't seem the electoral makes it very difficult for SCOMO to win the next election just where the polls are at today. Not impossible. So you're going to have a Labor government, not a kind of communist government, probably kind of a closer to a Keir Starmer-esque government, um, which, which will, you know, chisel away at our freedoms um, sl- slowly and, and increase state spending and, and whatnot. So I wouldn't exactly put things on. On a, a particularly positive line for a- Australia's politics.
1: Uh, and Matt, let me ask you, do you take Jordan's point that, uh, okay, I mean, I'm not saying that they set the uh, entire framework for all international debate, but these freedom indexes that tend to put uh, <laughs> are, are the Aussies and the Kiwis towards the top of it is that does that engender a sort of complacency? You know, countries with your best days behind you, you know, and still living off the glorious reforms of the 1980s and the 1990s, um, you know, is there a real sense actually of drift and perhaps, uh, those of us who want freer, lo- you know, freer, more market orientated economies, well, we might want to look back to the Australia and New Zealand of the 1980s and the 1990s, but we don't really want to look over there today for inspiration, or am I being too harsh on my friends from the other side of the globe? No, I,
3: I think that that's, that's more or less accurate. Australian, uh, I think still probably does very well in a lot of those, um, uh, uh, traditional indexes, and rightfully so, Australia is, you know, in, in global terms, um, relatively speaking, these are relative indexes, of course, a relatively free country that's relatively easy to do business in, relatively open to trade. Um, there's a lot of good things going on in, in in historically in Australia that have set us on that path. But I think that, that, that you're probably right, has led to complacency. You know, our previous prosperity is not necessarily something that's going to survive forever, and it, it needs to be um, not chopped away at, as it's currently been. So I think Australia has slowly moved, been moving down in some of those indexes over the, over the recent years, just as um, things haven't necessarily been going in the right direction, um, politically, uh, when it comes to economic
1: policy. And Jordan, let me get the last word to you. Um, the Back in the 1970s, the then director of the IEA, Uh, when asked about how bleak everything was in Britain, and my God, things were pretty bleak in the 1970s, he sort of pointed out to him, you know, the trade unions are controlling everything, the commanding heights of the economy are in nationalised hands, the IMF is bailing us out, uh, everything's going wrong, and he was asked sort of what the point of the Institute of Economic Affairs was, and he said, cheer up, things can only get worse. And uh, what he meant from that wasn't just be phlegmatic about how things are, but that you needed to, almost things to get worse, unfortunately, in order to create an inflection point where people realised radical reform was necessary. Do you think, uh, it sounds like, Jordan, you were sort of saying you're, you're playing defence quite a lot in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, is that what you're expecting? That there'll, that there'll be sort of, you know, the economy will tank over a period of time and then there'll be an inflection point? Or can you win these battles in, you know, you were saying, you know, a new battle every day, can you win them? You know, can you actually shoot the alligators or do you need to drain the swamp?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna gonna have a bob each way on this one. I think yes on the economics because New Zealand, um, we, it's a relationship similar to Canada and the US and that Australians don't give a flying hoot about us, but we constantly compare ourselves with Australia and as, as the gap between the countries widens, then that um, that presumably wakes New Zealanders up, especially if the Australians ever turn off the ability for Kiwis to be able to um, move and um, and live over in Australia or work over there um, as a right. The pessimistic side is actually what is happening in one of the really strong agendas that this government is running. And that is what is called co-governance because of our uh, uh, unique constitutional structure and the agreement that was done between the British Crown and our Indigenous people. And frankly, the reinterpretation of that with a sort of um, uh, uh, critical race theory uh, basis means our constitutional ground is seriously shifting against democracy, against the uh, uh, equal rights, and frankly, against property rights. That really scares me because once you hard bake in that um, entitlement based on skin color or on, um, uh, on uh, ethnic background. Unlike the pendulums of other areas of public policy, it's really difficult to figure out. I mean, Fiji took what, uh, five coups to get rid of a, a um, race-based constitution. Um, there's lots of other countries around the world its prosperity has uh, disappeared because um, of going in that direction. That's what scares me the most because I don't know how you get the genie back in the bottle. So optimistic on some stuff, I think that it is, it, it is cyclical and it's essential that, you know, who was it, Anthony Fisher, that said, you know, when there is a crisis, politicians and intelligentsia will reach round um, for what ideas are lying around. And it's our yeah. um, it's business. Job I appreciate to keep those good ideas lying around. Exactly. Yeah. I appreciate you're a think tank. We're more of a sort of Battle Tank or uh, our Taxpayers Alliance uh, mm-hmm. style uh, business model, but we're all pushing in the same direction, um, and I think the time will come for that. That said, it really scares me because New Zealand is facing a, a more of a unique challenge around giving up some of those fundamentals sure. that uh, uh, previous generations took for granted. So I think we need a bit more think and a bit more tank,
1: gentlemen, right? That's, uh, that's, the, way to, that's the way to turn this around. We're clean out of time. We've overrun. Uh, but Jordan and Matt, thanks for joining us. Matt, I'll see you again very soon, assuming I can safely get back to the UK. Jordan, look forward to catching up with you as soon as the, really the law to it, allows. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on this special Asia-Pacific version of Live with Littlewood to put the world to rights. Uh, You know, we've pretty much sorted out what needs to be done in the economy across the world, how to tackle China, what we got wrong on the COVID pandemic and how to get back to those housing and days of reform which uh, so many of our countries witnessed in the 1980s. So Matt Jordan thanks very much indeed. My thanks to, to Raina and Donna who joined us earlier in the show. Thanks to all of you uh, for watching. Thanks to everybody at home. We'll be back in 2 weeks time and I'll be back in sunny London back in our Westminster studio. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like thumbs up button Remember to subscribe if you aren't already by hitting that little subscribe barrier and uh, hit the notification bell just next to it so that you get uh, all the notifications of the plethora of videos that are upcoming on the IEA London YouTube channel. If you have a few pennies spare in these straightened times, it would be great if you could support our online content. Uh, IEA London has a Patreon scheme. Details are in the show notes below. Uh, My sincere thanks to all of our online patrons, but particularly to our top tier patrons, Donald Blaney, Costomano, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip O'Zooth, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby, and Timothy Worrell. We greatly appreciate your support. Thanks again all for watching. Stay safe, stay free. Over and out.